Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Living Word Church, 24th of May, 2020. We're, we're looking at... Um, my name's Randall Lawton, by the way. Um, great to be back with you all. Um, look, um, today I'm going to be looking at uh, Ephesians and Revelation, and I'm entitled today's message, God's Glorious Economy. Now, let, let me begin with uh, an illustration from... Uh, world a world nation and namely Hungary um, Hungary is an interesting country at the moment because under the leadership of its Prime Minister Viktor Orban uh, he has declared that um, Hungary will be a Christian nation and uh, he himself declares that he is a Christian um, the policies of the government have been to reject homosexual marriage, to reject the, the legal recognition, recognition of tra transgenderism. Um, the whole monetary tax system has been structured to promote family life. So if you're in, uh, married with children, you get uh, generous um, subsidies from the, from the government and tax perks, uh, women, for example, who stay at home and have four children, um, they are exempt, four or more children, they are exempt from, from taxes for the rest of their life. Um, and interestingly, this economy is the success story of Europe. We don't hear about it in the Western press for, for certain reasons, I'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, they are the success story of Europe. Over the last 10 years, they have produced nearly 900,000 new jobs in a population of about 10 million people, which is quite extraordinary. And they, they have an unemployment rate of about 3% at the moment. So uh, the, the, the reason why I, why I share that um, story about Hungary is that if we live in God's economy, if we live in God's way of doing things, the financial economy looks after itself. Uh, these, this nation is under constant attack from the, uh, from the EU, the European Union, uh, and the progressive media of the West uh, just don't report on Hungary, you hardly ever hear about it on our news, and uh, They've been black banned by the media, and often when they reported, it's it's all this negative kind of biased reporting that um, comes from the mouth of certain reporters. But let's just look at this word economy. The, the, this this Hungary, Hungarian nation is is a success in their economy, and the the word economy is a composite word of two Greek words, oikos and nomos. And uh, so the, originally the, the, what, what this means is the word meant house law, um, oikos house, nomos law. So that really means, it, you know, originally it meant household management or, or, um, like, um, or stewardship or something like that. Uh, today, the word economy has morphed into a very superficial understanding that just has to do with money, primarily on a nationalistic or a global 
uh, in a global kind of context, but it's been superficial in its under in 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 the word become has become just a mechanical word for the flow of money. Uh, but originally, the word uh, is a very interesting word because historically, the word in the English-speaking world reflected the original Greek understanding of the word. That is, is an, an economy was always based around the management of a house, the rule of a house. So in the ancient world and in uh, so medieval Europe and right down up, perhaps up to the Enlightenment, um, an economy was really simply uh, a family under a father who would manage the affairs of that family, including the money. And the money was important because it meant that uh, the family was cared for and looked after by the father. So he would, would oversee the whole thing and the, the whole family was an economy as such. And uh, the the father would would uh, manage it. He would um, be the steward of that family that belonged to him. So this is very interesting. So we're, so today I'm talking about God's economy. So we're looking at how this how God manages why why he manages his creation in the way he does, how he's planned and what he's planned to do and how he is uh, organising everything and uh, making everything come to a very wonderful end at the end of this age. So we're looking at, um, firstly we're going to look at, uh, uh, we just need to have a quick look at the nature of God because we need to understand that everything that God does flows out of his nature and in the scriptures, we have one indivisible, indivisible God. There's one God, the God of Israel, the Creator, who is also uh, in the New Testament revealed as the, the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So there's uh, there's a revelation of these three persons, which make up this one indivis indivisible God. So God is the divine family, and the Father is ruling in this divine family. And he manages his family, he rules it, and he su he supplies life to the others in in the in the trinitarian economy, if we can put it that way. So the, John five twenty six talks about the Father giving the Son life in itself, and the Spirit is never just the Spirit; is the Spirit of the Father or the Spirit of the Son. So he's dependent on the other two for everything. So we have this uh, amazing trinitarian understanding of God. Which means that um, uh, that that God is 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 family, his divine family. And what that means is that when he created the world, he created it out of the out of his own uh, nature, out of his own being. So he purposed that he would create uh, the world to reflect his familyhood in his Trinity, which is really quite. Wonderful to, to think about and contemplate. So um, at the head of that family, as we've said, is the father and he uh, is building in the creation and managing a home. He's, he's actually the, the, the purpose of the creation and the purpose of, of the people, the image, and specifically the church, the kind of faith, 
is that he would dwell uh, and with them, he would make them to be his home and that would be the place where he lives. So we might say he has his own familial economy because when he comes here, he, it's a home and he manages it and he looks after it and provides for it. So all of that comes out of the nature of God. So I just want to go through um, uh, Ephesians, um, so a few verses from Ephesians. So if you want to follow through, if you remember I said that um, economy, oikos, nomos, uh, house rule or house management. Um, uh, so let's look at how that word oikos is used. Now in Paul uses it in, a, in particularly in, in uh, 2.18 to 3.10 in Ephesians. Uh, he uses this word oikos, which sounds funny in English, but um, in Greek it was quite a, a common word for house. So, but we translate uh, our words differently. So, uh, it, a little bit is lost in translation. It's still there in in one way, but if you're reading, if you're a Greek reader and you're reading this, you, these these oikos words are just hitting you. And Paul employs all these different forms of this. Oik is the root part of the word so it's oik this and oik that as you read through the uh, through the text to put it very crudely um but anyway let, let's just let's just have a have a quick look at, at ephesians and follow through his uh his um teaching here so one three blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so we see here, God is not some generic God. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father is the Father of the Son. Um, you can't have a, a, a Father without the Son. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the, the Messianic Son of God, as we read right through uh, the New Testament. So Paul is giving um, praise to uh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really like a heading for all of his argument, for all of his teaching as he goes through. And you might remember that um, he uh, he goes on to um, um, to talk about, uh, in verse 5, he has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So the Father adopts uh, people, of his choice into his family and they're forgiven and they're cleansed and they're, they're washed so they can enter into his family and they're, they're fitted out to be children. They're adopted as children. You remember Paul says that the, that um, God has poured the spirit of the spirit in our heart, the spirit of the son who cries Abba father. So that's very powerful indeed. And that that's really the, the reason of, of, of our forgiveness is so that we can uh, have a status, a, a, a familial status, uh, a members of God's family. So if you look down in verse 10, uh, verse 9 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So there we have, if you look at... Um, Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. The word plan there is an oikos word. And it really means, it's, it really means house management, once again. It means it's, it's, it's similar to economy. So 
uh, in in English, it's, but in the Greek, it just means the same thing. It means um, to to manage his house. So God um, has set forth forth Christ uh, to manage his house um, and to bring in the children that he's planned to bring into himself. So then, look at two eight and uh, we would. We, uh, it's, it's between two eight and three ten that we have all this whole series of oik words, house words, if you like. So let's look at uh, from three. I'll just read through from uh, two eighteen to three ten. So uh, two eighteen for through him we are both we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We're just talking about that God has adopted us into the family, and, he's, and, and Christ has given us access. In the one spirit to the Father. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's look, just look at some of those words in there. So when Paul talks about, um, in 2.19, he talks about, uh, uses the word aliens, so that you are no longer stranger and aliens, talking about the Gentiles in particular, particular there. But the word aliens is an oikos word, and it literally means outside the house. So the, the Gentiles were outside the house of God, and the gospel has brought them in. Paul talks about grafting them in. In, in in Romans, but here he's using the word aliens there at the outside, and it's a similar sort of idea. And he brings the the Gentiles in, and they become one man with the with the Jews, one new family. But they were on the outside, and now they're in. So they're outside the house is the literal translation of the word uh, aliens, an oikos word. And then if you go down to at uh, the end of nineteen, it says that. Um, uh, you are fellow citizens with the, the saints and members of the household of God. That's an oikos word. That's a that's a, a simple translation there, which household is represents house, of course. Um, build on the foundation um, is uh, when it says in verse twenty, built. That's an oikos. It's a verb um, for oikos, building, house building. So God is building a house on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, um, in whom the whole structure, once again, structure is li literally uh, a, a, a house building, not a verb, but a but, but the noun of, of, of a structure, of a house. Um, there, it's another oikos word, being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Um, and then uh, dwelling place. Uh, in in him you are also being sorry uh, before that uh, being built together. Uh, built in is is a verb of oikos, so building, house building once again. So all these oik words are just hitting you as you read this. You see, uh, into a dwelling place. So once again, a home, a house, uh, an oikos, if you like, uh, into a dwelling place for the spirit. So God, Paul's saying that God's building a temple, a house. Uh, a home, uh, and that home is his people, the, the Jews and the Gentiles being reconciled, 
and forgiven and reconciled by God's grace and brought together uh, to form this glorious new house. So then in 3.2, he says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So now he's talking about his apostolic ministry and the stewardship uh, literally is house management, once again, a, a, an economy. So he's given the, the responsibility to administer as an apostle. So God, as the Father, is administering his plan, he's organising his house plan through the whole of creation and history and bringing it to his goal. And now the, the apostle Paul is is called by God to be an apostolic house manager on behalf of the Father. That's really what it means. So you could tra translate that stewardship or house management or administration, something like that. And the same thing in 3.9, if you go down to 3.9, and to bring to light for everyone that, that is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God whom created all things. I'm not sure what translation you've got, but I'm reading from the ESV. But there's various translations of this, but the word plan there in the ESV is, is, is a house management again. So we're back. So he takes us back to the to to the house management of the mystery of God hidden for ages, who created all things. So that if you verse ten, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So um, God has made this family. He's organising it. He's structuring it. He's bringing it together. He's managing it. He's ruling it. He's governing it, governing it so that. Um, the church can find its voice, uh, discover the word of God, and we are to be prophetically declaring uh, the word of God as the family of God to all the cosmos. Now, that's quite a stupendous um, thing that we're in as the church. We should never forget that. So in conclusion to this little word study, God uh, is, the, is, is our father, and he's building his home and his family. And... Um, so that's quite something. So what, what's going on in society today? Let, let's, let's ask that question. So uh, what, today, the, 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 the predominant philosophy of, of our society, the, 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 the engine, the, the intellectual engine of our, of our universities and our schools and our politicians um, is Marxism. You might be surprised to hear that, but it is. Uh, there was a, there was a, uh, research done not too long ago, and they ask all the professors of the universities uh, in Australia what their leanings were, and 90% of them were, were leaning towards either heavily Marxist or, or socialist in that direction. And so Marxism is really a scourge. Uh, it was... It was um, it, it, in historically, it, it found voice and expression in the USSR, in the, uh, in the great communist um, Russian um, states, um, in, uh, and uh, that, that experiment was an abject failure. The whole thing collapsed, if you remember, in 1988. And we, I, that, that was an expression of, of really from the 1800s uh, where um, Marxism under the Karl Marx began this philosophy of dialectic, what we call dialectic materialism, 
the clashes of two ideas and coming out with one at the end and there needs to be some sort of clash and you get to something better at the end. So everything's progressing by this clashing of of um, of people or things or something that, that brings something greater at the end. So there's an assumption that everything's getting better and that happens just kind of through... Uh, humanistic enterprise and and through uh, humanistic uprisings and things like that. So what what that means is the the, the upshot of what I'm saying today in 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 this Marxism is that the the state becomes our father. That that's what they do. They they the, everything becomes reliant on the state because the state. Um, uh, facilitates this uh, this uh, this way of just flattening everything out in life, and uh, uh, Marxism means that um, there's an uprising of the masses for a government to rule over the people and provide its needs, and what that means is that. Um, um, the state becomes our father and. Uh, our families, the, the, the families of, of the, if you think about USSR, they, they destroyed families. Uh, everyone had to work. They tried to, they took away rest and all those sorts of things. Uh, and that's exactly what's going on in our society. We're actually finding through this Marxist emph emphasis that's coming through our schools and through our universities that the state is becoming our father and uh, they are robbing our children. And um, our schools uh, socially engineer our children. Um, they inoculate our children against, really, uh, by just whether explicitly or implicitly, by by um, uh, not supporting the family and uh, teaching them to respect authority and so forth. So what happens? All society collapses, and that's this is this is pushed itself into the church and Marx himself was a person who uh, didn't follow his own views he was a person who was a very poor father he was a poor husband he had an affair with a slave woman who he didn't pay uh, he had two children by this slave woman um, so he his, his whole family life was one of adultery and he was a family wrecker and his philosophies have have taken grip in Australia today, in in various forms. They might not be exactly the way he he taught it, but generally speaking, that's that's the direction in which everything's heading. So the state has become our father, and um, so this is very concerning. So we 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 really need to get back to the gospel, and the gospel means that we are God's children, and that's what He's about. God is our father, not not the state. Ultimately, we must rely on the father, and fathers must learn to take control of their families and 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 manage and organise their families as economies, as it were, on behalf of God the Father, and reflect that. So, let, let, before we um, talk about that again a bit more, we we need to talk about first things being first, and um, it is impossible to have a family. Uh, a proper family, that is. Um, it's possible to have children, of course, but it is impossible to have family without genuine family without marriage. And uh, Paul makes this very clear. 
So in the later part of uh, Ephesians, um, he talks about the marriage, about marriage, and he talks about father, in, fathers instructing children and so forth. So, um, so just to pick up chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children um, uh, to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers are to have a fatherly role in the house of instruction and discipline, and their, and their wives, as, the, as mothers, of course, are to, um, to have authority uh, over their children, and the, and the father sets all of that up in the way he runs his family. So that's Paul's instruction to the father. But before you have a family, you have a marriage. So before that, he gives instruction to about wives and husbands and all the rest of it. A lot of it's um, on the nose for our modern ears, but in our contemporary ears, but we really need to have another look at this because it's actually quite glorious. And then when he gets to, he, he goes through the whole, the way in which, uh, men and women are to operate in marriage. And then in 531, uh, he quotes from Genesis. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. Gen Genesis chapter 2 there. So he's, he's, he's going right back to the creation. And then he says in verse 31, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So what he's saying is that the, the writer to Genesis, the seed, the seed is there to understand that the, within the human marriage, within the image of God, right at the beginning, there is this understanding that that is to show and refers ultimately to this whole plan of God uh, to have a wife for his son. So here, let, let, let's try and understand the picture here. So God is father and he has his eternal son who becomes flesh and then that eternal son who becomes flesh is is given a bride by the father to marry and that bride is the church so ultimately that bride becomes the, the, the son gives that bride to the father for to be his children but the bride the sons of God as Paul talks about but that bride is so important because she is married to the son and she cannot enter the kingdom unless she marries, becomes married to the son. So when you become a Christian, you, you join this great bride of Christ. So in that sense, the whole church is feminine. In one sense, we're all masculine because we're all sons of God, but we're also feminine because we're all, also the bride. And this, this, our, all of our human relationships in family reflect all of this. Uh, um, it, it's not that we, we, you know, what we're talking about here in the end and what God is doing in his plan is not sexual and there's something greater coming and it, it reflects a, a greater uh, creation that is to come. But our, but our human life now does reflect that, relies on that understanding to give us the meaning and the substance for how we live. And as we live together in, in, with fathers and marriages and so forth, we, we, we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves and that's why marriage, that's why fatherhood is so important and that is why uh, femininity is so important because um, uh, the gospel is about this bride that needs to marry the son. And our marriages need to reflect that. That's what Paul's saying. 
uh, and our families need to reflect that. So, what, what's what's the important thing about this about this bride? Let, let, let's let's try and open it up. So, so when when the Word becomes flesh, the Son of God, the Eternal Son of God, took on flesh, and he, you know, he comes. Uh, John says this in John chapter three, twenty seven to twenty nine. So, if you want to read with me from John chapter three, twenty seven to twenty nine, let's have a look at that. Um. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and, and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now what John is saying, he's saying that Christ is the bride groom and he's come for his bride and he is the best man he's the greatest of all the prophets that have ever been and he's the culmination of that prophetic ministry in the old testament and he speaks as the best man he prophesies about this groom that has come for his bride namely christ and his church so that's how john sees it you see and that's this is the 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 reason why the son of god became a man he came to get his bride. And as we go through the Gospel of John, the Father gives all of Jesus' followers to him. The Father gives them to him. Jesus makes that very clear. He, Jesus himself doesn't choose them of his own accord. The Father gives them to him. So what, what we're seeing is that the Father is having an arranged marriage for his son and he's choosing those who will be in the bride and then he's giving these people to be married to the son and this is not a sexual this is this is spiritual union um sort of goes beyond our our gender in this life but uh it's very important to understand that as the primary thing in understanding marriage otherwise our human marriages will never have any real significance or they just won't last but the point i want to make here is that at the end of revelation at the end of the book of revelation let me read this from Revelation chapter 20, uh, 21, uh, sorry, 19, let's go for 19, 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the roar and uh, to be the, the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and, he, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So in other words, there's this just this joy in heaven. Peals of thunder come out of heaven as this woman, this this woman comes forward to marry the Lamb, the Son of God. And she has made herself ready and she's dressed in this pure linen, in this bright and pure dress. You, you know, in marriages, I remember I waited for my wife and, she came down the aisle and she was just gorgeous. I mean, and everyone stood up and, you know, you, you know how it works in marriages. Everyone waits for the bride. So all of history is like that. We're all waiting for this bride to finally have the final consummation of this marriage to the son. And all of heaven, when this all happens, all of heaven breaks out in praise and 
worship and the, and the skies uh, thunder and there's just this great void, this great cry of glory from all the voices of heaven coming and rejoicing at the, the coming of the... And this is the church, you see. This is the bride of Christ. So let, we need to understand a little bit more here in... in, in, in um, Chapter 21, let, let's look at chapter 21, 9 to 11. So then uh, the second part of chapter 9, 9b, of uh, verse 9b of ch chapter 21. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now this is a very, very important few verses for us to understand and really what I want to get to today. And that is this bride, this wife of the Lamb, this bride of Christ, is this not only dressed in this glorious, pure, fine linen, she is covered in jewels. She is... If you notice there, she has the glory of God. And if you go back, she is um, uh, she's like a most rare jewel, like jasper as clear as crystal, and she reflects the glory of God. So if we go back to chapter 4, remember when John saw uh, God on the throne, this is what he said. He says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an of an emerald. So the first revelation that John has of God on the throne, the first thing he sees in that revelation is the beauty of God. God is covered in jewels. This is all pictorial language. This is not dead literal language. God is You can't actually see God, but he has a revelation of God. You can't see God's essence, but he God does show his glory. He does reveal himself in certain ways. And John uses pictorial language to show us, as, as do all the, as many texts in the Old Testament use the same kind of method to, so that we can understand and see, have some understanding and revelation of who God is. So God is this glorious, holy God on His throne, but He's beautiful and He's He's decked out in jewels and He's He's like He's got rainbow colours like an emerald. So He's a covenant God who who sparkles like an emerald with all the colours of, of the rainbow. Extraordinary when we think about that. And then this wife in Revelation 21, she reflects the glory of God, if you notice in verse 11 of 21, having the glory of God. So then, so John is at pains to explain the nature of this bride. You see, she's absolutely glorious. So he goes on in verse in verse 18, the wall was, was built. He's talking about the bride here is also Jerusalem. Those two ideas come together. But the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as grass. The foundations, the foundations of the wall of the city adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald. We're in chapter, verse 20 now of chapter 21. The fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topest, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates and were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. So here's this bride who is the city, you see. And just 
covered in jewels of all kinds of colours. She would have been just, as John saw this incredible people who are the bride, he sees this dazzling and stunning, um, colourful and sparkling beauty that comes from her. Now that's the church in the grace. That's what the grace of God does for the church. That's what ultimately the church will be uh, as it consummates at the end when finally all sin is put away. So that's really quite something. So so um, fathers, let, let, let's, let's talk about femininity. So fathers have a very important function to represent God the Father to their families. They, they are to manage their households well. They are to to, to uh, look after their children, instruct their children, be good husbands to their wife, to love their families and to, to be oversee everything in their family. They to, 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 to have good economies, if, as, as it were. So, but that, that's, that's a masculine thing but um, in terms of fatherhood. But in terms of the bride, you see the bride, uh, femininity is to reflect. Wives are to, to, have, uh, to have a beauty about them that reflects this beauty of God. They they have an indispensable femi- and femininity is 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 so important in this way. And what what is very important, very destructive today is this this feminism that is around that makes women aggressive and rude. And they they might dress up well and look look pretty and you know and the, the scriptures and that celebrates all beauty, but. What the scriptures celebrate is the, is is the a beautiful spirit because God is spirit. You can't actually see God, but God in spirit is beautiful. That's what John's saying in, in Revelation four, and he's saying that 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 the church reflects that. So true beauty is in the heart. It's in it's in our spiritual demeanor to, towards God as the church, but specifically wives, women. In in you know we we're made to think. That to be a woman, uh, you know, being oppressed by patriarchal history and all this sort of stuff. But just just ignore all of that. It's just historical revisionism. Most of it, there's elements in truth in it, but it's just it's concocting a story to push an agenda, and that agenda is to destroy the fatherhood of God. And to do that, they've got to destroy the plan of God, which is which is to destroy femininity, destroy the you know just. To, to 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 take away femininity is to is to take away the whole meaning of the bride and what she's about in the church. So, so beauty is actually very very powerful. Uh, men have a certain power and a, and a regalness about them. A true man is a strong man of courage and strength. He fights like Christ, like the true husband. He fights and he he, he takes he takes the spiritual battle up for the family. And the wife has this beautiful responsibility to to express the beauty of God. So she, that but that that beauty of God is is most powerful, is most glorious, even though it it is in the first instance a very a very quiet and humble way of living. So so Peter says it says it this way about wives: Do not let your adorning be external. So beauty is not about external. Beauty, as the world celebrates, you know, you can you can dress up beautifully, but be a really horrible person. A woman can dress up wonderfully and, and look gorgeous, but can be a horrible person. 
but a real a real beauty you know but but god celebrates true physical beauty of course he does but that that's not the that's not the what what he's after he's after this this spiritual beauty and that then changes a woman into a into something and then that may actually affect the way you dress anyway but the way we present ourselves but but peter says do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of clothing uh, but he's saying don't make this the external beauty the thing that that is your identity that's what he's saying there he's not saying you can't look pretty or anything like that but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty is that word beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So this, so this, this is this is you know beauty and being precious. We think of jewels which are beautiful and they're precious, and this all reflects um, women in in true marriage. There's a story about Nettle. I went. A member. This is a lady who was. Um, uh, a member of the German Mennonite community in the Ukraine in the 1930s and 40s. She endured two famines, killing millions of Ukraine. Her three brothers were deported to Siberia. Her husband was killed in World War II. And she was forced out of the U Ukraine, uh, fled from, had to flee, flee from the war and from death and destruction. And she trekked some 1,600 kilometres in the open in fierce cold, battling lice infestation. And she had to avoid being captured and put to death. She landed in Austria in a small house, and as soon as she landed there, she began to plant flowers. So there's this, this woman in the in the in the ugliness of a war. She made it her business to beautify the world as soon as she could, and, and to show the beauty of God. She was a very godly woman, and she she looked for beauty, and that's a very feminine thing, and in that way, women lead the church in in showing all of us how to submit uh, to Christ in a very beautiful way. All right, so Hungary is a nation but who has succeeded on the basis of restoring family and all of that marriage that we've talked about. But what about the church? Hungary is a nation, the church, who has who who are who are the the active, faithful people of God, the born again Christians who have received the Holy Spirit? How much more should we reflect this household of God? Should not fathers reflect the fatherhood of God, and should not women reflect this beauty of God in their femininity, uh, to show that the church has to come to the to to the Son, in submission and glory to come under his rule as the son respects the father's rule and all of that to bring glory to the father and the son and the spirit um, and primarily to the father ultimately as the son and the spirit lead us in worship of the father and that that's that's what that's what the christian life is all about and there's a great cosmic battle to get all of this done that's that's what we need to understand so let's conclude we've run out of time so let's conclude so all human gender, I've just got a few things here, I'll just read them out. But So all human gender, the way God has created us, is necessary for us to reveal God in our human lives as the image of God. 
Men must be men because of the fatherhood of God and women must be women because they reveal God's stunning, colourful and dazzling beauty, as we've said. Secondly, thus marriage should be honoured, as the writer of the Hebrew says, and protected, as Mark and Jesus insist upon, and family life established and managed and organised and celebrated even. So in the Western world, in the church, we are destroying our humanity. We deconstruct our genders in all kinds of ways. We celebrate homosexual marriages. Our marriages are falling apart. Men and women fight each other. We kill our unborn children. We have no time for proper family life anymore. Our children are out of control. Many Christian families are finding their children that their children are becoming homosexuals. We shut them away. We shut our old people away in homes to slowly die in isolation from family life. And we even allow them to kill themselves. So that's where we are in the Western world today. That's where we are. And we have to have a, a good look at it. We have to understand what we're about in the church. And so this is why pastors need to have their marriages intact. Then Their wives need to be uh, respectful of them and submissive and their children need to be submissive to them and they, they need to show that they can rule in their uh, like, like like God rules in his creation they need they reflect that in their, their married life and if they do that well then they can serve in the church so there needs to be good character and good marriages in our in our leaders and the leaders need to be men because the father is the leader of the Trinity and fatherhood is what leads in all things. So to get all this right, we need to come back to the gospel, to, to what the gospel means for human living, not just the gospel to make me feel good about life or for myself. Is there grace when things go wrong? Of course, yes, there is. But grace must be accompanied by faith, and genuine faith is repentant faith. In other words, we must not presume upon God and think that he dishes out grace like a social security department, willy-nilly, that is. We must obey the gospel, and to obey the gospel is to fear the Lord, and to fear the Lord is to do everything his way. It is to obey his will and to be wise for the days are evil, Paul says. That is, we are to make our business to seek out what God want, God our Father wants and how we are to live and the fashion in which we are to live in our everyday lives with all of their different colours and textures that, that life entails and this is all to bring glory to god the father for who he is and for his plan to for his bride to come to his son so it's unthinkable that the church would bring spiritual and sexual pollution and and ugliness into god's beautiful temple into his beautiful home that would be unthinkable to do that so our uh, we have to hold get make sure sin is kept in check it doesn't mean we're we sin less, but sin must be kept in check. Paul says sin does not reign anymore. Grace reigns. And so don't let sin rule in your body. Romans chapter 6. So we have a choice. What economy do we want? Do we want God's glorious economy of familial life, true familial life and marriage, where each family under a father who has a financial plan to serve God and his family represents the nature of God? If we choose this, we are, involved, we are involved in the reason why he made everything in the cosmos, seen and unseen. Or do we, want, do we want the economy of the world, 
where money in and of itself drives a huge materialistic machine run on emotional instability of of the of idolatrous greed so i encourage us encouraging us to choose life and live as as the lord said to moses uh, said to the people through moses so it is a mistake that in these days is it a mistake that in these days we have been driven into our homes in these days of covid-19 as god is god saying to us he's driven us into our homes so we can't travel we can't go anywhere god is calling us back to this whole understanding of god's household economy god bless you all